Well, I'd like to invite uh, Jonathan and Anna to come and join me up at the stage. As they do so, can we make them feel really, really welcome? That's great. Well, uh, Jonathan, Anna, great to have you up here. <laughs> it's live. <laughs> You've got more than a minute, actually. You've got a special dispensation for that. Um, you've been coming to King's uh, for a few months now. Uh, and as we're going to find out, you've had a very, very interesting background, lived in many places and visited many places in the world. Anna, we're going to start with you, though. Um, you were brought up probably, is it probably fair to say it was in a stable background? It was a church-going background. Your parents took you to church every, every week. So for you, as a child, what was your experience of of Jesus, the gospel, and the church? Um, I'm sad to say, actually, I didn't have anything of a personal experience with Jesus. A church for me was a boring experience that I just wanted to get over with. Um, and sadly, the, my parents didn't demonstrate a personal relationship with God, and therefore I didn't know that was possible. So um, dry, boring, not, not particularly exciting. Okay, haven't sold it so far. Um, but actually, you left home, you went to university at 18, and uh, something very significant happened to you during the first term. You had a Christian friend on the same course as you, and you noticed something very distinctive about this friend. So what was different, and, and what happened as a result of this first term? She was very excited about her faith. Her faith was real to her, and she talked about God as if he was a real person um, with personality and relevance, and this was totally new to me. I'd always had um, respect for the Christian faith and um, a sense of its weight and importance, but no idea that God was interested in me personally. And, and so to, to have that opened up to me was extremely exciting because I did believe, but it just... Um, I needed, I needed to have it sort of colored in. What happened, what happened, it was like my life before was a two-dimensional black and white drawing. And then when I uh, had an encounter with Jesus and got so excited about him, my life got colored in and it became three-dimensional. And, and what happened really was that I, I was invited to a talk that I understood they went to every week and they were just inviting me in. But actually, it was an evangelistic talk that they'd been praying that I would go to. Mm -hmm. And as it happened, I didn't really hear very much of what the man was saying. I just, just God was speaking to me personally. And um, his spirit was saying, you know, I, I know you and I, I want more of a walk with you. And uh, this is, so it all opened up then. And what changed? So you make a decision then for Jesus at that meeting. So what changed? Um, I went from being somebody who was... Um, quite uncertain about myself to having purpose. Um, I realized that God had a plan for my life and a loving plan, that he was a loving father and real. And uh, so I was filled with excitement, desire to read, read the Bible, and uh, yeah, peace and purpose. That's great. Thank you. Well, Jonathan, over to you now. Uh, you grew up in quite a different environment. You were a missionary kid, so your parents had moved out to France they were doing missionary work in the 1960s, 1970s. And that meant pr pretty much that you were surrounded by the gospel. You're pretty much saturated in the gospel. You heard it, if not every day, then every week. And so what was your response to being in this environment in terms of the church and the gospel? 
Right, yeah, the, you know, the message of the Bible was very much in my mind. You know, I knew the stories, I could quote parables and things like that, but really it hadn't migrated from here to here. And uh, some people say that's the, the most difficult journey to make, you know, when you're coming to know God. And uh, so, you know, I, I had a lot of troubles as a kid. I was in, in trouble at school. I was a bit of a bully. I almost got kicked out of school three times before I was 11. Um, and so basically, by, by the age of, uh, I think I was 12 or about to turn 13, my, my parents were pretty desperate. <laughs> and uh, my mom's British, my dad's American, so my mom's parents uh, up in Cheshire, their church was running a, a camp, a bit like the New Day thing we heard about, but much smaller. And um, I was sent, my, my sister and I were sent on this camp from France. And so we had a week of hearing the gospel every day. Uh, and we were a bunch, with a bunch of young people. And you know, at that age, you know what it's like if you're a teenager now or if you remember what it's like to be a teenager? It's so important to be cool, right? And so I saw these guys that were like a little bit older than me, 14, 15, 16, and they were cool. And they had something I didn't have. And I knew that. And so I just got hungry and interested, and I'd really listen into the talks. And then one night, I remember clearly, I just went back to the tent, and I knelt down, and I just prayed a prayer. And I, I read John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever should believe in him would not perish. Bang! I was like in floods of tears, and the Holy Spirit just really grabbed me. And so that was the beginning of a journey uh, that's obviously lasted till today. Now, you, didn't te- you went back to France, so you do this camp, you go back to France, and you don't tell your parents what you've just told us. So they're not aware of this, but then your father took you to one side for a bit, one of these deeper, meaningful conversations. So he took you to one side. Uh, what did he say to you? Yeah, so before he started talking, I'm like, oh, no, what have I done, you know? If my dad takes me aside, that means I've done something wrong. That's, you know, all my life, this is what I'd experienced. So I'm like, uh-oh. And he's like, Jonathan, your mother and I, we've been watching you the last few weeks. Something's, something's different. You're like, you're tidying your room. You're helping your mother in the kitchen. You're not fighting with your sister anymore. Did something happen when you went on holiday to Wales? And in those days, I was really shy. And uh, I said, uh, I said, well, I said, what? Did you say you became a Christian? You accepted Jesus? And I'm like, no. Eh. And he, you know what? He gave me this biggest bear hug. And he said, you know, son, you've made the most important decision you will ever make in your whole life. And I'm like, wow, that's a pretty big deal. And, and you know, all my life, I, I've really felt a lot of um, support and encouragement and, and, and um, yeah, just a lot of blessing from my parents. I grew up in a good family, thank God. And so, but that, that time was, was really special. And, uh, and I, they could obviously see the work the Holy Spirit was doing in me that even I hadn't properly realized. So he was commenting on that. That's great. Thanks, Jonathan. So for both of you, you have these moments, really significant, life-changing moments when you encounter God. And, and the gospel really changed both of your lives. So back to you, Anna. You then finish university, and you do a variety of things. You, you're out in, in, in uh, Tanzania. You work for a couple of years as, as, a, as a teacher. And you were working in a very multi-faith environment, so that's Muslims, Hindus, Christians together. And it clarified a few things for you in terms of what you wanted to do and how you wanted to serve God. And 
you prayed a very specific prayer, didn't you? You were very clear with God. You, you told him what was, uh, was going to happen. What was that prayer? I said, Lord, I'm willing to serve you anywhere. I was feeling called to cross-cultural mission, and I wanted to be better equipped. And I said, Lord, I feel I want to be um, better trained. So I was thinking about Bible school. But what I said to him was, Lord, I'll go anywhere except the Middle East, and I don't want to work with Muslims. So very clear. So God knows exactly what the boundaries are at this point. So you then go to Bible college. Uh, how did the Lord work through that prayer? Kept bringing people who'd been to work amongst Muslims across my path and, you know, um, just basically um, we had a bit of a laugh together because... Um, I, in spite of myself, I kept being drawn to all things Islamic and um, made friends with people who had a heart for Muslims and got excited about reading about the history of mission to Muslims and, yeah, in spite of myself, got to the end of Bible college with a real heart for reaching out. Yeah. <laughs> so the Lord took your prayer, took the things you wanted and the things you didn't want Put them all together and put it, put it, uh, change your heart so you wanted them all. Is that, is that fair to say? Brilliant. Okay. So, Jonathan, back to you. You're at the end of your, we'd fast forward into your end of your university time. You're back in France studying. You're helping out in a sort of soup run in the center of Grenoble. And you meet a man who you were serving. And he was very influential. Can you tell us a little bit about this man and why he was influential? Yeah. So, one night, one cold night, I was out with a soup run team and just, you know, giving soup to guys and bread. And, and we'd sit on this cold floors of Grenoble City downtown center and just talk with people. You know, if anybody here has done homeless ministry, you know what I'm talking about. And um, I was just drawn to this one guy. I found out his name was Brahim, which is, uh, he, he had an Arabic name. And I discovered he was a Franco-Algerian man. I'm like, okay. And uh, I saw that he was drinking out of this large Coca-Cola cup. I'm like, Ah, it's really cold to be drinking Coca-Cola and, you know, in the evening like this. And then I get closer to him, and he was, like, reeking of alcohol. And I discovered that he was drinking pastis. If you know what pastis is, it's like this uh, French um, aniseed liqueur, super strong. And he was drinking it neat. <laughs> so I'm like, all right. So, you know, basically, uh, over time, I discovered this man was uh, an alcoholic. He was a drug addict. And he was deep in the occult. And... Um, but he was very proud to call himself a Muslim, all right? And um, so over the months, I got to know him, and, and I, I couldn't get away from him, and he couldn't really get away from me because God just kept saying, go spend time with him. And uh, so those months were really instrumental, and God used them to, to, to really bring me, uh, to give, a, give me a burden for Muslims, to give me a passion to, to see Muslims. Because when I talked with Brahim, I discovered he was, um, so near and yet so far from the truth. You know, if anybody know a little bit about Islam and stuff. So, you know, here's one story. You know, he'd show up dead drunk <laughs> in my university dorm, and all the international students were together, and they put us all together. And he'd banging on my door at 2 a.m. And I open the door, and he just collapses on the floor. And I drag him in, and I'm, like, praying in tongues over him for an hour or something. He, like, sobers up in the middle of the night. I have the light on. And he's looking around my dorm room, and I have all this prophetic art, like these pictures that God has inspired me to paint. I've been doing for many years. And he'd sobered up by then. He's like, 
what's that? You know, he's like, the Holy Spirit was touching his heart and speaking to him through my art. And um, I started sharing with him. And it, let's fast forward now. Basically, about six months later, uh, he started coming to church. This Muslim man started coming to church. And, um, and people said to me, is that the same guy that we met? He was freaking us out and really scary. Look at his eyes. And when I first met Brahim, his eyes were black. Not brown, black. And if you've ever encountered anybody in the, in the, involved in the occult, this is one manifestation of that. Their eyes are dark, physically dark. His eyes had changed color. And I hadn't noticed that, but my friend said, look at his eyes, they're light brown. I'm like, oh, yeah, I hadn't noticed that. And here again, just a, a demonstration of the work of the Spirit in somebody's life. Then, uh, just before I had to leave and come back to England, uh, I was due to meet him on a bridge one day, and he didn't show up. And I never saw him again. And basically, a couple years later, I was in London with my parents at a show in the West End. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, this deep burden comes upon me to pray for Brahim. I hadn't thought of him for like 18 months or something. And, and the Holy Spirit just said, pray for him. I started weeping. <laughs> so I'm in the west end of London weeping during this show. And it wasn't because of the show. It was because of what the Holy Spirit is saying. And we're riding on the tube all the way home to West London. And I'm like weeping. And my parents are there. And they're like, are you okay? Are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. And, and then all of a sudden, bang, the burden lifted. And if you're an intercessor, you know what, I'm, what I mean by that. And I, I, just, I just knew I'd finished my prayer. And, um, and I, I don't know what happened to Ibrahim, but I feel in that moment that God was calling me to intercede that he would step into the kingdom. Um, and I guess we'll only find out one day um, if he's in the kingdom or not on the other side. But, um, yeah, so during that time, the Lord really used Ibrahim to draw me towards that, that call on my life. That's great. Thanks, Jonathan. So... In response to that, you go to, you do a 10-day residential course. It just so happens to be at the same Bible college as where Anna is. And cut long story short, you get married. And you decide, <laughs> it's a long story, very short. <laughs> you, deci- you decide actually together, as you get married, you know that you're both called to working with Muslims in the Middle East. And you do some exploration. You, you try out a few places. And eventually, you move out to Lebanon. In uh, March 2006, uh, you joined a team, but you, you sort of knew them beforehand, and you committed to be out there for a year with that team serving them. And so, what, Anna, what did you do in the first few months once you'd, you, you'd gone out to Lebanon? Uh, we were full-time language students. We were learning Arabic, and so pretty much doing that um, morning, noon, and night. And, yeah, and, and making friends and uh, trying to be established in the community and, and learning about the culture of South Lebanon. But then you were just, you'd just flown back to the UK for a sort of temporary visit over here, short visit over here, and then something significant happened. What happened? We turned the, the television on the morning we arrived back in London at Jonathan's parents' flat to the news that Beirut Airport was under attack, the airport that we'd just flown out of the night before, which was a completely surreal experience to see what had become our home under attack, and so we, um, yeah, we didn't go back as planned. The three weeks later, and um, experienced by proxy, you know, the, the trauma of sudden and violent war. We um, supported our team members through their evacuation. We uh, got as involved as we could with with helping people we knew. And that meant you were actually sort of forced to be back in the UK. You're back in the UK for a year. 
your first son, Joel, was born during that time. Uh, then it was appropriate to go back to, to Lebanon. And then by 2012, you, you, you had two other children, Ethan and Barney. They were born out there. And that was the time, really, with the effects of the Arab Spring were starting to affect huge parts of the Middle East. And there was a huge influx of Syrian refugees, 2012, into the south of, of Lebanon, where you were living. And you'd set up an NGO, a non-governmental organization, like a charity, to, to help them. So what was your approach in, in really providing help to those refugees out there? So very much the philosophy of our organization was not to give handouts, because handouts just create dependency, and it's not helpful, but to offer hand-ups. And the way we did that is we offered microfinance loans alongside business training, language training, computer training, lots of different things, to local people. Uh, so that was with the Lebanese people. that We'd been doing this for years before the Syrian refugees started arriving. Lebanese and Palestinian people we were helping. When the Syrian refugees started arriving, um, some of the Palestinian refugees who were born and grown up in Lebanon for decades, that's another story, um, who had encountered Jesus and as Muslims had become followers of Jesus, excitingly enough. And they just got a burden from the Lord to start reaching out to these other refugees. They're like, hey, we're refugees. We've been refugees in this country for 65 years. We know what it means to be a refugee. And the Lord gave them a burden to reach out to these other refugees who happen to be Palestinian, Syrian. Hope you're not lost yet. Um, it's a bit complicated, the Middle East. But they started, they approached me and said, you know, brother, can, can we do something? Can your NGO help us to do something to help them? And so I prayed and really sought the Lord about this because I knew I was, I was going to step into something pretty big if I did this. And cut, very long story short, over a matter of years, we raised, I don't know, in excess of a hundred and some thousand dollars and ran four phases of a relief project that was a very holistic project, medical, emergency medical relief, um, basically psychosocial counseling for the refugees who had suffered intense trauma from the war, um, as well as the, these, and these were the believers themselves, the Palestinian guys that I'd been discipling for s five, six years by then, who were themselves on the, on the forefront of, of running this relief project. And so they weren't just doing the medical relief by partnering with local doctors and nurses and things like that, but by also sharing the gospel. And their vision was, we need to show the love of God in action. These guys have lost everything. They've walked from Syria barefoot, some of them. Some of the stories I could tell you make you weep. We don't have time. Um, so they're like, we need to help them in practical ways. Do we want to show them the love of God that changes lives and has transformed us? And so they started doing that. And over a matter of months, first of all, it was really cool. One of the key believers, we call him Matt, study his real name. He, the Holy Spirit told him, you need to spend time with this guy. This guy was the most, one of the most influential men in the camp where these refugees were arriving to. He's a medical doctor, really respected man in the community. Matt started meeting with him 30, 40 minutes every week. And that led him over a period of months to come into the kingdom. He then became the linchpin for the whole operation. And, and he recruited like 10 or 12 nurses and other medical staff and basically through the NGO, with the money we'd raise, we funded the projects that they were running. And through the love in action, the medical relief and the other uh, counseling and stuff, basically several dozen Muslims 
started showing interest in the gospel. Now, since then, the numbers of it have just multiplied, and we're talking about at least 140, 140 Muslims in this area of Lebanon who are all refugees from another country, Syria, who have either accepted Jesus now as their Lord and Savior and or are on their way. You know, we don't do Alpha because Alpha is quite westernized in the way it's done, but we use other kind of tools to do that. And one of the key things is just get people into the Word of God. We just get people in Arabic. They're studying the Gospels. And uh, so, yeah, this started happening, and we're, like, very excited. You know, this is, this is what we were all about. Now, you also, some of those that uh, come from a Muslim background and become believers, very, very influential. Some of them are imams. Can you just explain the significance of that, please? Yeah. I really wish I had two hours. The amount of stories I'd like to share with you guys. But um, basically, there's at least five uh, Islamic religious leaders that we know of. There may be more. You know, these are the long-bearded guys you see walking around the mosques and stuff who are now our brothers in Christ. You know, if you know what that means, I think that's a big hallelujah. And the reality is this is not just happening in that context. Thank you. It's all glory to God. You know, he's doing this work that you're not going to hear about on BBC and CNN. You're not going to hear this. But this is the reality of the kingdom of God breaking out in the hardest places of the Middle East. And so we, are, we feel privileged to have had a part to play in, in these stories. And so these guys, you know, they're in their mosques preaching Jesus. Now they don't preach him every single Friday. But, you know, they, they're known as followers of Jesus. And anyway, that's a whole other story. I could go into that. But yeah, these guys are very influential. And yeah, I'll stop there. That's great. Thanks. Thanks, Jonathan. So it seems after years of, uh, of, of planting here, you're starting to see a really fruitful ministry. God's blessing your work. And many of the things that you'd hope for and pray for, you can see coming to, to reality. Um, and then... Friday, the 13th of December, 2013, you get a call out of the blue to go and pick up your passports and your papers that you need to, to, to stay in Lebanon, in Beirut. So what happened when you went to pick up those papers? Right. So um, our process last year just was taking forever to renew. Because we're foreigners, obviously, we had to apply for residency every year and renew this whole rigmarole. We're like, oh, got to do it again. Usually it takes three weeks and get, you get our papers and it's fine. This time, after four and a half months, still nothing. The government held out passports because that's the process. So we didn't have our passports. We couldn't leave the country for even if we wanted to. And so I get this call, and I'm like, hmm, that's a bit fishy. Friday afternoon in the Arab world, you get a call. You know, everybody's gone by then. At 5 p.m., I get this call. I'm like, hmm, something's not right. And I'd had this sense of foreboding for several months that something, was, something big was going to happen. It, we just had no other sense. So basically, I go up, and uh, instead of receiving... Uh, Instead of receiving our passports with a little slip of paper saying we've got residency for next year, they, they took our money for the residency, and they basically stamped an exit visa into our passport say you need to leave the country. I'm like looking at this thing. I'm thinking, guys, you made a mistake. He looks at the passports again. He says, there's no mistake. You've got to leave Lebanon. And in that moment, I realized that there was no point arguing. You know, these guys are junior officers, and they're just executing a higher-up order. We discovered that the order had come from the highest up man in this branch of the government <laughs> who accused me 
have become an, a threat to the national security of Lebanon. I don't know, it's my hairstyle or something like that. I'm just a really dangerous guy, basically. Um, I'm being funny, obviously, being, uh, saying that. But it was a shock to us. And over a matter of the next few days, we discovered that this was no joke, that we were being ordered to leave the country. So you can only imagine, seven and a half years of your life had to pack up in five days. We literally flew out five days later. It was incredible. The Lord just showed us favor that we have never experienced before in our whole lives. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but we had to leave. And so, you know, cars were taken care of, apartments were lent out, and just amazing how things fell into place. I had to do all kinds of legal paperwork and stuff to hand over leadership of the NGO to other people. And anyway, long story. So we're out. And three days before Christmas, we're landing in Heathrow again. <laughs> So that was, that's what happened to us. Okay, thanks, Jonathan. So, Anna, so huge upheaval, no notice, week to leave. And what you're doing is you're leaving behind your work. In one sense, your, your sense of calling, your colleagues, your friends. Not only that, your children. They leave behind their lives. They believe, leave behind their routines. Uh, they're, they're best friends. But for you personally, Anna, for you, how did you come to terms with this abrupt upheaval? How, how did you handle this personally? Um, I felt a little bit like, like I've been kept out of the loop, really, with God, because I am the, the kind of person who loves um, relating deeply and communicating, and he hadn't let me know. And there had been no warning. And, of course, it's a shock, but just... Some people said, well, it's a comfort, isn't it? God knew this would happen. And they meant, it, they meant it to be comforting. But I wasn't comforted by the fact that God knew because he hadn't told me. <laughs> I was a bit put out. Um, really, that's how I responded. And uh, so you had to work that through. And there was a bit of a light bulb moment when you were doing the dishes. When you're back in the UK, this has been a few months, you have a light bulb moment as the washing up is being done, or rather as you are doing the washing up. What's the light bulb moment? The light bulb moment is God suddenly impressed on my heart that there are the times when a parent doesn't reveal everything to their child is not because they don't love them. It's because they do love them. And you can think of times in your life where you've withheld information or the whole truth from your children because you want to protect them. And it's right that you do that. And I felt God saying to me, as your father, um, withholding what I know is an act of love at times. And uh, I was hugely encouraged and reassured and realized that um, as, as believers and as people who want to seek God and want to know God more... At times we feel if we know the future, then that means we really know God. And I don't think that's true. I think God is, in, in this experience, God has been calling me to trust him and his heart, even if I don't have the whole information and I don't have the full understanding of why it happened. Um, but I have more of an understanding of his heart. That's great. Thank you very much indeed. Now I know that you're here you can only see to the end of the year. Your plan is to have a sabbatical. Enjoy that. Have a break. Recover. It's exhausting doing the type of work that you're, that you're doing. 